Well, good evening, everybody. How are we doing this fine day? I'm kind of excited. The book of Titus. Oh, yes. The book of Titus is just, man, it is so packed with a a loving mentor to his one of his young pastors that he'd been working with and working with. And yet, as, as we get into it tonight, we're going to see that it was not an easy task that Paul had uh, equipped, or shall I say, encouraged Titus to take. And I want us to understand something. Tonight, here's the plan. We're going to kind of do a brief overview of Titus, but we're actually going to be going through all of chapter 1. And next week, we'll do chapter 2, and the week after, we're going to do chapter 3. Just so you guys can kind of see where the roadmap's headed. And the reason I broke this up, because if you were to ever just sit down and read the whole book of Titus... Man, it flows so wonderfully from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And I want us to understand that as Paul is writing to Titus, he understands why he's writing. He's, he's reminding Titus, going, I gave you a tough job. <laughs> We're actually going to read some of the historian's views on the people of Crete, the Cretans, you might call them. And let me just share a little bit for you. They were a crazy bunch of people. I mean, not only were they lazy and liars and gluttonous, they actually encouraged highway robbery. I mean, what? And yet, I want you to hear the gospel message in every chapter. Like I mostly do, I try to, before we dive into this pastoral epistle, I want to take a look at at a brief story, a time in Jesus' life as he's walking a certain road. He's going to meet someone that many people are going to go, why on earth is God talking? Or why on earth is Jesus talking to this individual? So hold your places in Titus and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. You see, one of the marvelous aspects of the gospel is that when a person gives their life to Christ, not only are their sins forgiven, but their entire life begins to be restructured. Their values transform, their character changes, and we find a great example of this in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And behold... There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, 
and was rich. I love how Luke puts that in there, man. I mean, we have to understand that he was a tax collector, so he worked for the Romans, which made him not a, shall we say, you didn't want to be associated with him because he was a traitor. Yes, he was a Jew, but he was working for my enemy. He was taking my money that I worked hard for and taxing me and probably taking a sum off of it and then sending the rest to Rome. And so Zacchaeus did this really, really well, and he was rich, it says in Luke. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Oh, man, here we go. Yeah, Those chuckling know exactly where I'm going with this. You're rich and you're short. Great attitude. But Zacchaeus, all right, he runs on ahead, climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place... Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the guest of a man who was a sinner. Verse 8. And yet Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And if you're a note taker, a highlighter, I encourage you to highlight this next verse. Because my brothers and sisters, we sometimes forget this. For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the loss. My friends, we could stop right there. We could spend some time in prayer and thought and reflection. And I actually want to encourage you guys, if you have not thought about where Jesus has saved you from, to take this week and actually examine your heart and remind yourself that, yeah, I once was lost, but by God's grace, I am found. And then I challenge you to look outside of your four walls and see a world that is hurt, that is lost, and that needs the gospel. Amen? Zacchaeus. Some of us may be Zacchaeus tonight. Some of us may be coming tonight 
and just going, okay, I'm tired. I think I have it all. I'm doing well. But there's still what we Christians like to say, a God-shaped hole in our life. No matter what we fill it with, just it's missing. It's missing. And we're lost. Well, tonight, my friends, I hope that when we say amen tonight, you will hear the gospel, the true gospel, the loving gospel of Jesus Christ. That he came to seek and save the lost. Maybe, maybe tonight you're the crowd. Guys, let's be real. Let's be honest. How can God be working in someone like that? Why would God spend time for someone like them? Doesn't God know how horrible they are? And it's really easy to fall into that judgmental mindset. I hate to admit it, but I've been there. I hate to, to, to stand in front of you guys, but it's really easy sometimes to be what we like to call the older brother of the prodigal son. That judgmental man. God, what are you doing? I can't believe. And so if that's where you're at tonight, and it's not real comfortable me admitting that, by the way. Why don't you pray with me for a softened heart to be reminded that Jesus came to seek and save the lost? Can you imagine if we in this room prayed that? Either as Zacchaeus going, God, thank you for saving me because I was lost. Or maybe we as the crowd going, God, soften my heart to have eyes like you. How radical that would be in our circle of influences. That is the gospel at work. My friends, that is what God is calling each and every one of us to do. And it's hard. It's hard, but yet go back to the good news of Jesus. He realized how hard it was. He realized that we couldn't do it on our own. And so his son became the ultimate sacrifice and traded life for life for us. Man. Zacchaeus. Saw Jesus, encountered Jesus, and his life changed. Praise God. My friends, we're going to be jumping into Titus. And as we turn to Titus, I want you to be thinking of a few things. One, uh, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. And I want you to, to realize that there were some people 
in Acts chapter 2 that must have heard the gospel, the Pentecost happening, and they took it home and shared it. Because, believe it or not, it's not real common in Acts. In fact, Titus, the person Titus, is not really found in Acts. We'll look at some of the verses, some of the other chapters, uh, other books of the Bible where Titus is mentioned. But I want you to understand that, that, that this book, the book of Titus, was written because Paul had left Crete and said, Titus, I want you to take care of it. I want you to equip elders, leaders. I want you to debunk. I want you to refute. I want you to be able to debate the false teachings that are happening. And I want you to love and think like Jesus. And so if we were to break open Titus, and so turn with me to Titus. And I'm going to kind of lay the foundation. I'm going to lay the groundwork here. You see, the author of Titus is the Apostle Paul, as you've heard me mention. The date that this book was written was probably approximately 66 AD, you know, 65, 66 AD. Um, it was right, we, they believed that it was right after Paul was released from his house arrest in Rome. Okay? So it, it's in between um, his arrests, and so the epistle, the purpose of, of the book of Titus is, well, like I shared earlier, it was to encourage Titus in his faith, to encourage Titus on how to be a leader, to lead the people well, to lead the church well. And you're going to see a lot of similarities between the people of Crete and, I hate to say it, but the American church. There are key characters in this book. You got Paul, obviously. He's the first person we're going to meet. He's the author. It's right in between his, uh, his house arrest. He was imprisoned twice, and um, he was released, and then he was arrested again. And after that second uh, um, arrest, he was executed. So at this time of writing, Paul was approximately 60 years old, and he writes 1 Timothy and Titus in between his imprisonments. And then they believe that it was the second, the book of um, Second Timothy, that's why we were doing chronological. We went First Timothy, Titus, and then we're going to do Second Timothy after this. So these three letters are commonly referred to as the pastoral letters and uh, because they give great instruction for pastors. They give great instruction concerning how to take care of the church. And to be honest with you, to this day, these three letters remain the most accurate and very best counsel a church and its pastor could receive. And so Paul is writing to this young man named Titus. 
All we know of Titus comes from Paul's epistles. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts. By birth, Titus was a Gentile. He's called Greek in Galatians chapter 2. Paul probably converted him into Christianity since Paul refers to him as my son. We don't know where he's born and raised. Um, Most likely, they're guessing somewhere in Asia Minor. Nor do we know where Paul or where he was living when Paul met him. We do know that according to 2 Corinthians, Titus accompanied Paul on many of his travels. Um, Paul actually says, Titus is my partner and co-worker in your service, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But as a companion, he was a great comfort to Paul. Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. Because I, I'm missing my brother. And so Titus was a comfort to Paul. Scholars think that Titus spent time with Paul in Ephesus. And so we can keep going about Titus. We can, we can make some lists. Um, believe it or not, according to 2 Timothy, Titus was with Paul in Rome, and but eventually made his way to uh, Dalmatia in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then he kind of just disappears. He, he just is unheard of again. But legend, scholars, uh, some scholars believe that he did return to Crete and continue to preach and teach until he passed the passed away at the age of about 92, 93 years old. There is no evidence to support this. It's just their historians are just trying to piece together Titus's life. And so he's a young man who was given a very challenging place to pastor. You see, he was probably mid-30s. And you see, Titus' task in Crete was to take a congregation that was in complete chaos and help them grow into Christ-likeness. You see, when a job is really difficult, there's basically two types of people. One, you're going to say, wow, this job, this job is difficult. We can't send him. The other, oh man, this job is difficult. We must send him. And Titus apparently was the second type of person because he was sent. And so we come to the third, the Cretans. Crete. You see, Titus's ministry took place on an island in the Mediterranean. Man, let me tell you, I'm looking at the snow outside. That sounds wonderful right now. An island in the Mediterranean. It was actually one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean, roughly about 270 miles long, about 50 miles wide. The Cretans were among the most despised people of the Mediterranean world. What? I'll read it again. The Cretans were among the most despised people of the Mediterranean world. They were thought to be barbarians, known for lying and brutishness. 
Send me, Lord, send me. It is not known who or when the gospel was introduced, but like I said earlier, um, in Acts chapter 2, people from Crete were mentioned. Upon their return to Crete, they might have, they might have uh, made, their, made the gospel known to their neighbors. In Acts, there is no mention of any of the apostles going there, but since Paul writes that he left Titus behind, he must have visited at one point. There's just no recording of it in the book of Acts. Well, isn't that wonderful? Life on this island was rough. In fact, the behavior of its citizens was well known for the coarseness, rowdiness, the dishonesty, greediness, and laziness of its people were heard throughout the world. One person said this, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans considered highway robbery honorable. Yeah, I kind of imagine it like the city of Tortuga of Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. You know what I'm talking about, the, the city of pirates where the rum is always gone. That would be the island of Crete. And so I want you to understand as we get ready to dive into this, this is one difficult assignment. The church on the island of Crete was facing challenge after challenge after challenge, staying true to the gospel in a chaotic environment. Very similar of today. And so as Paul writes this, he offers him personal instructions to help him lead his group of believers from chaos to Christ-likeness. And here's what I'm going to do. We're going to start in Titus chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole first chapter so we see it as a whole. And I wanted to lay down the Cretans. I wanted you to understand why we have to read this as a whole. Because it's, it's very common to take Titus, and it's a good thing to take Titus and see the qualifications of eldership in this first chapter. And my friends, we ought to do that. And I challenge you, if you have time, to take this list and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes to Timothy about the qualifications of an elder and compare them. Because some of them are very similar, and some of them are just, just a little bit different, because Paul was writing to that individual church. And we as a whole get to see it and marry the two together. All right, and so you will see me, you will hear me talk about the qualifications of an elder. But my friends, like I said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this doesn't mean that we as the body just say, well, I'm not an elder. Check. I don't need to listen. Because this is something that as we strive for Christ's likeness, we should be striving for this godly character. Amen? Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, 
promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have entrusted uh, by the command of God our Savior. Talk about a beautiful run-on sentence. Wow. To Titus, my true child in common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching, for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, end quote. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Oh, man. Where do we start? <laughs> I mean, you think about that. First of all, man, God bless Titus. <laughs> you read that and you're going, oh, that is a challenge. My friends, side note, pray for your pastors. Okay? You've heard me say it. You read the book of Titus and you're going to see similarities between what's happening in Crete in today's day and age. And so, my friends, pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. Because if we are to take chapter 1 wholeheartedly and strive for Christ-likeness, well, we're going to see how the pastors, how the elders should be encouraging us how to live. Amen? Let's start. Paul, verse 1 a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge 
of the truth. Oh, man. Paul, a servant of God. The ESV renders it a servant, but in fact, the term is bond servant. Okay? And I want to bring this to our attention because the term bond servant, the Greek word that was used for this, was the low slave. So Paul basically is handing out his business card. But, but, but that's what's happening right now. Paul's going, all right, here I am. The low slave, the bond servant. That's not how you and I would introduce ourselves to anyone today. I mean, am I right? We try to make ourselves, oh, well, my name is Garrett Harrington, and I'm the, and, and, and you just, you know, make sure that you know that I'm the operations guy here. I run, it's like, wait a minute, hold on here. Backwards thinking. What if I saw myself as a servant? What if we all saw ourselves as a servant? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We don't have time to turn there, but jot it down and read it. It's really good. Paul, a bondservant. I chuckle because of all the titles that he could have used. He chooses bondservant, the low servant, the humble servant. And it's a friendly reminder that it is never a low thing to be a servant of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ, according for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Oh, man. You see, Paul stood in accord with godly living. He's writing these things saying, I'm not only a low servant, I'm an apostle of Jesus, according to the faith. According to the faith, because guess what? That faith is in harmony with God's elect. And God's elect are those whom he chose from before the foundation of the world to receive his salvation. We can identify God's elect because we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ by our lives. We live out the gospel. In hope, verse 2, of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Ah. I love this. I mean, this intro is just layer after layer of amazing goodness. Paul first says, I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. There is truth. That truth is the hope of eternal life. Now, I want you to understand that when we use the term, when Paul especially uses the term hope here, it doesn't mean like, oh, I hope I win the lottery. It's the hope that 
it's it's anticipated founded. It, it, it's knowing that it's going to happen. It's just not there yet. Okay, it's it's not wishful thinking, but it's I have the hope. I know it's going to happen, but it's not there yet. That's a complete reversal of how we see things. Do we see eternal life as I can't wait to go? I know it's there, but not yet. How would that change the way we interact with people? How would that change the way we pray? How would that change the way we interact with God? That's why Paul is writing this foundation, this, 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 hey, this is who I am. I'm a servant. Why? Because there is godliness. There is hope of eternal life and reminder. God cannot lie. And it was promised before the foundations of the earth. Verse three. And at that proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Guys, this is amazing. You see, Paul is telling them, hey, hey, the proper time, it's coming. It's manifesting through the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of who Jesus is. And he continues saying, I was entrusted with it. We are entrusted in it. Side note, because you're going to see Paul say, this is how I was entrusted. This is the teaching that I had, that the gospel is true, that Jesus is real, that he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again, ascended into heaven, and he traded you life for life if you believe him, if you accept the gospel. Now, guess what? You have the gospel. Go share. Oh, I don't like that part, Garrett. I, 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 I don't talk well. Hold that thought. Verse 2, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You see, Titus was a true son in our common faith. Titus was a genuine brother to the Apostle Paul. I mentioned that earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Titus was a partner and a fellow worker with Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Titus walked in the same spirit as Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Titus walked in the same steps as Paul, in the same manner of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So therefore, Titus could be a pattern to other believers. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. We're not going to get there tonight. But you can read ahead. Spurgeon says this about Titus. He seems to have been a man of great common sense. So much that when Paul had anything difficult to get done, 
he sent Titus. Can I say something selfishly? I hope people can say that about me. Oh, there's a difficult situation. I know. Let's send Garrett. He's crazy enough. No, no. I'm hoping they would say, hey, let's send Garrett. His faith in Christ is real. He's not perfect. Dear God, no. But you know what? His faith in Christ is real. The spreading of the gospel that Paul has encouraged Titus to do on the island of Crete is something that we as believers should do in the States. I heard this, and it really, really resonated with me. It says, the spreading of the gospel is one beggar, us, telling other beggars to seek and save the lost where the food is, Christ. The spreading of the gospel is one beggar telling other beggars where the food is. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that. And so now we get to get into the nitty-gritty and start talking about qualifications of elders. But like I said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is not just qualifications for elders. If you're going, Garrett, God has not encouraged me or spoke to me to become an elder. This is not a chance for you to just zone out. This is actually a great thing to start praying for because you'll see godly character. Remember what I said earlier about the whole reason Titus was written was to turn chaos, the people of Crete, into Christ-likeness. And here's the other thing that you can do, side note, and again, I covet the prayers. Pray for your elders. Pray that we would be aligned with this. That we would have a heart for the loss. And my friends, how amazing would that be? To be able to go to our elders, our pastors, and say, Hey, Wednesday night, our Wednesday night crew is praying for us. Because let me tell you, we as pastors, we as elders, we take time and we pray for you guys. And I'm here to say, we need your prayers too. So please, Pray for us. Let's read. This is why I left you in Crete. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) Paul just gets right in. Just straight up right in. Okay, no questions asked. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town I have directed you. Okay. The reason that Titus is actually written was to encourage him because there are multiple cities throughout the island of Crete. Like I said earlier, it was a big island, one of the biggest. It was also one of the most barbaric, apparently. And so Titus had his, had that challenge. The term set in order, the things that are lacking. In fact, it says that it's, it's a medical term. 
It means the setting of a crooked limb. Ouch. That's what it means. If you're not following the gospel, you're broken. Oh. Have any of you ever been so privileged to have broken a bone? You remember them setting that bone? I might have lost my salvation at that time. Does not feel really well, no matter what kind of medication they give you. I couldn't do it by myself. I needed a doctor. That's the terminology. That's the understanding that Paul is writing to Titus. He's saying, you're the doctor through Christ. Set in order. Set things straight. The things that are lacking. Well, we're about to see what is lacking. It says this, appoint elders in every town I have directed you. Elders and bishops, they're described as pastors, and they are over the congregations in the different cities of Crete. And so the assumption was Titus would go to, and he would just rotate. And the the home churches, he would build up and he would encourage. And yet he had a list, because this letter was actually read throughout Crete. And so there was no arguing There's no argument going, well, but, but, no, no, no. Here's what it is. This is what it means to be an elder. We want you to appoint elder. My friends, this list in the following passage means that God has specific qualifications for leaders in our church. Leaders should not be chosen at random. They shouldn't be chosen just because they volunteer or because they aspire to the position, which are all good things, or because they're maybe even a natural leader. Leaders should be chosen because they match the qualifications listed here. That's heavy. When when you put that mantle on, you go, God, I need your help. I need your help. It's fine if a man thinks he is called. Reminder, he needs to be qualified as well. The qualifications for leadership in the following passage have nothing to do with giftedness. Paul didn't say to Titus, find the most gifted ones. In fact, he said these are the qualifications. Godly character. And so I want to remind us that education doesn't just make one qualified for spiritual leadership. Even though education is a great thing, and we should be educated, we should be diving deep and learning more about our Lord and Savior. Two, being a good talker does not make one qualified for spiritual leadership. However, we need to be able to clearly express the gospel that people can comprehend, understand, and follow. And yes, natural and spiritual gifts are great, but they do not qualify for spiritual leadership. No matter how much you give, how much you volunteer, 
We greatly appreciate it, but it does not qualify you for spiritual leadership. What qualifies a man for spiritual leadership is godly character. And godly character established according to this criteria that Paul lists. And so Paul charges Titus and says, find these, disciple them, encourage them. And I've said it before, and you'll hear me say it time and time again, because I don't want you to be thinking, well, Garrett, you're just talking to people who want to be elders. No, my friends, these qualifications are valuable for every person. Not only those that aspire to be a leader, but they are clear indicators of godly character and spiritual maturity. Amen? Let's take a look at what these characters are. We're going to start in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That's a prayer for all of us. And that's, that's what Paul is, is actually encouraging. He's saying, look at the chaos that is in Crete. Start going through your churches and start seeing the godly characters and start discipling them. Start nurturing it to where godly character is actually produ- produced and good fruit is happening. Those are the leaders. So what does that mean? Let's break it down a little bit. If a man is blameless, nothing to take hold upon, okay? There shouldn't be anything in the leader that others can take a hold of and attack him or the church. It's a broad-term statement, but yet a man who lives a righteous life, it needs to be seen as a righteous life. Yes, I know, no one can stand up rightfully and accuse that man of grievous sin. But they are the first ones to admit and say, oh man, I, I, lost, my, I lost my temper today. Or, or, or they are transparent. They are encouraging everyone else to live a blameless life in obedience to Jesus Christ. Okay? This is important because he's a steward of God's house. The greater the master, the greater the servants are expected to be. Do you guys catch that? You want me to you want me to restate that? The greater the master, the greater the servants are expected to be. That means, my friends, we serve the greatest master of of, of them all. Have you started noticing that Christianity is not just a passive Belief, it's very active. 
very real, very encouraging. That man needs to be a husband of one wife. The idea is one man, one woman. It does not mean that a leader must be married, okay? If that were the case, then both Jesus and Paul would be disqualified from leadership. Nor is it the idea that a leader can never remarry if his wife passes away or if he were biblically divorced. The idea is that the leader has his focus upon one woman, and that is his wife. Having faithful children. Oh, man, I I, I shared a little bit when I taught 1 Timothy. A leader must raise his children well. His ability to lead the family of God must first be demonstrated in his home. Now, we know that every single person in this room, guess what? It's a personal relationship, and everyone in this room has our ups and downs. Paul is saying, you know, if a child who somehow disengages their brain for a while, (laughs) that doesn't disqualify you as as a leader. However... How are they encouraging the child to return back? Do you guys catch that? Do you see the difference there? Their heart must be for the loss as we see it. Not self-willed. Basically, not selfish, guys. A selfish person disqualifies themselves from leadership. They show their self-willed nature in arrogance, stubbornness, and proud self-focus. They're not quick-tempered. The quick-tempered also disqualify from leadership. The drunkards, the violent, and the greedy for money. I, Paul mentioned those three, and it's amazing if you, if you think about it with the quick-tempered, the sober-minded, or the quick-tempered, the not sober-minded, it's, it's the idea that they become a bitter man. And so the more wine that they, get, they drink, most likely the more violent they become. These disqualify an elder. Greedy for money also disqualifies an elder. Why? Because what happens is this. The elders who are supposed to be teaching start teaching things that tickle people's ears to get to to make it a little bit happier to make it a little bit easier to swallow to make it a little bit and the gospel message gets left behind my friends the truth is alive active and sometimes it's hard to to comprehend. Sometimes when we really search for the truth, it pierces. I want to make a statement here. If the truth pierces your heart tonight and you are honestly, earnestly seeking Christ, understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. Romans 8. Do you guys catch that? 
Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is conviction, but there's no condemnation. And so as we are going through this list, if you're going, man, if that's a godly character, I'm hopeless. No, you're not. Think about it. This whole book was written to a barbaric city or barbaric island that thought highway robbery was an honorable thing. My friends, your sin is not bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. So please let it be a conviction tonight. Don't let the enemy make it a condemnation. Amen? Greedy for money? Yeah, I mentioned it because we sometimes will start trying to tickle people's ears. Not good. Not good at all. But they should be hospitable. A leader among God's people must be hospitable. They must love what is good. Sober-minded. Man, sober-minded. This describes the person who is able to think clearly and with clarity. They're not constant job makers. It doesn't mean that they don't have a sense of humor, but they think clearly and communicate the gospel message. They are just, holy, and self-controlled. A pastor, an elder, or a leader in the church must be just, right towards men, holy, right towards God, self-controlled, right towards himself. Matthew Henry says this, how unfit are these are those to govern a church who cannot govern themselves. So what are leaders of the church supposed to do? Well, we read in verse 9, You must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. My friends, we live in a world that tells people not to quiet people. Do you guys catch that? They, 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 they tell people, oh, no, no, you have to let that person speak. This is a hard topic to talk about because Paul is writing to Titus saying, hold on, guys, an elder of the church needs to know he needs to hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Martin Luther said this, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach, but he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. My friends, so very often we're told just to accept their truth, to accept their belief. And if you don't believe me, look at what is happening in the church today. It's horrific what is being accepted, 
what is being preached from the pulpit, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a self-help, feel-good, work-your-way-to-heaven. That's religion. That's not a relationship with Jesus. That's not an understanding of going, oh my goodness, I am broken. And so that elder needs to be able to teach good, sound doctrine. They need to be able to contradict what the world is passing on as truth. Remember a couple minutes ago how I said pray for us, elders and pastors and teachers? This is a great example of how you ought to pray, that we would teach good, sound doctrine, that we'd be able to contradict what the world sees as truth. For there are many, verse 10, that are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. You see, what was happening in Crete was they were becoming uh, moralists, legalizers. They, they were becoming people that would say, oh, you want to be a Christ follower? Great, but you still have to obey the Mosaic law. They were adding works to faith. And Paul goes, no, no, no. This is not sound doctrine. Refute that. Refute that. Verse 11, they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by that teaching. Why? Because it's shameful gain. It, 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 it's shameful gain on what they ought not to teach. They're looking at it saying, oh, hey, you know what? These problem people were motivated by gain, most likely um, financial or they would contradict and say, huh, look at how, how great I am. I'm a leader of the church now. And they're not teaching the sound doctrine. And so Paul tells Titus, silence them. Not violently, though. Do you guys catch that? Because if you were to do it violently, that contradicts elders. Jot down Peter 3.16, where it says, Set aside Christ, the hope you have in Christ, and be willing to share the gospel self-controlled. I love that passage. You see, I'm a debater. I like to debate. I have to curb my tongue at times. Because I like to debate. Why do I like to debate? Sometimes just to debate. That's not right. But I'm willing to listen and talk to you. And so my friends, Titus is encouraged by Paul. Don't let them speak. Silence them. Because they are just... Getting needless gain. And I like how Paul uses one of the Cretans' own prophets. A prophet of their own, in verse 12, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. We use the terminology in Proverbs. This is a good saying. Okay? That, that's what he, he's not saying that that prophet was all true, but 
what Paul was saying about that particular sentence was, yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> Y'all are. Ouch. But look how it continues. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. What Paul is getting at is going, guys, a lot of times we don't understand when we mess up. Lovingly correct us. Lovingly show us what the sound doctrine is. Oh, okay. If you let that person keep speaking, they're going to pull people away. And Paul says, don't do that. Lovingly rebuke them and share the gospel with them. And finally, it says this, to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, Paul was refuting the false teachers of these legalists. Remember how they were they're wanting to, you know, keep up with the Mosaic law, keep up with their food. Saying, no, 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 no. You have to understand the gospel. You have to understand the gospel, and that gospel affects you from the inside out. That's why we started with Zacchaeus. He saw the gospel, heard the gospel, and it changed him from the inside out. And so tonight, I kind of labeled tonight's lesson by our fruit. And I want us to think on two questions. I know we kind of rushed through that last portion. But as you start to understand the book of Titus, as you start to understand why it was written, as you start to understand what Titus was up against, I want you to think this, by our fruit. Is the fruit that I'm producing from the Pharisees or the Cretans? You see, many of the gospel passages about fruitlessness are warnings to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the false prophets. The Pharisees and teachers of the law produce the fruit of self-effort, priding themselves on fulfilling the smallest details of the law, kind of what the Cretans were trying to preach, busying themselves with activity, holding on to traditions, the Mosaic law, trying to impress others. That's what they were preaching. Yet, in Matthew 23, Jesus exposed their warped concept of producing fruit. You see, Jesus was concerned about the lifestyle and example of the Pharisees and their negative influences on others because the kingdom of God was about life, light, health, growth. But the Pharisees said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is Matthew chapter 15. 
And so the Pharisees, the Cretans, acted as if they were close to God, but their hearts were distant and disconnected from him. Therefore, the fruit that they produced was rotten. And so ask yourself, is there a reason for my guilt and my frustration in my walk with Christ? Is it because I'm trying to look good? Let you know that I'm a believer? Or am I allowing the fruit to speak for itself? Is my heart distant from God? Are my actions disconnected in themselves rather than means being drawn close to Jesus? You see, in our lives, every word, every action is fruit from our hearts. I don't like that. In our lives, every word, every action is fruit from our hearts. Sinners sin because that's what's in our heart. Thieves steal. Rapists attack. Adulterers cheat because those sins are the fruit being produced from an evil heart. Bad hearts produce bad fruit. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, You will know them by their fruit. Concerning false teachers, he was giving us a guide for identifying them. When we repent of our sin and we receive Jesus as our Lord of our lives, he changes us from the inside out. Zacchaeus, well, my friends, There were elders found on the island of Crete. They heard the gospel. They were discipled. And they abided in Jesus. So the fruit that you are producing, is it Pharisee or Cretan? Or is the fruit that you're producing Christ-like? Turn with me and we're going to close here. To John chapter 15. I know we've gone through a lot tonight. I want you to understand that as Paul was writing to Titus, he was encouraging Titus to look, to disciple, to encourage got the character. Not just for the leaders, but for the whole church. He warned them what they would say. He warned them that they would say, hey, I believe in Jesus, and yet they denied him by their actions. And Paul says, look at the fruit. You see, in John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples hours before he's betrayed, hours before he is tried, hours before he is crucified, where the gospel came to life. He says this, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not, or that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. God wants us to be bearing fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, it, he is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish, and it will be done for you. How do you know if you're bearing fruit or what kind of fruit you're bearing? By your fruit. Guys, we get to examine our hearts. We get a look. Am I being selfish? Am I being greedy? Is my pride so wrapped up and I'm not willing to listen to somebody? Am I violent? Am I angry? Wow. Lord, forgive me. I want you to to leave tonight knowing that the sin you're struggling with right now is not bigger than the cross. The gospel message was given to the Cretes, and there were people that changed because they believed that gospel message. And remember what the gospel message is? A beggar telling other beggars where the food is. And so Titus 1 allows us to examine our hearts and allows us to go, what is my fruit? My friends, I encourage you to abide in Christ. How do you do that? First of all, by repenting, knowing that you need him, knowing that it was your sin that held him on the cross. That truth hurts. When we think about it, when we examine it, we go, God, and yet you still love us. Help me be more like you. Amen? Father God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for Titus 1. And just as we wrestle with it and as we, as we look at it and examine it and we, we check our hearts and we see where we're at and what kind of fruit we're producing, Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would start removing, pruning, as it says, if, if, if we abide in you, you prune us to produce better fruit. Because we can't produce fruit on our own. It comes from you. And so, Father, help us understand that grace tonight. 
Help us understand that gospel message. That we were sinners. That we were Cretes. And yet, you came to rescue us. I pray tonight that your word would be soothing to our hearts, convicting to our souls, and encouraging us to think more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.